yeah, I gotta say, I feel like nothing like ballerinas to to get you ready to take the rejection of a writer. I really. <laughs> Hey, it's CNF, the creative non-fiction podcast where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories, how they became who they are, and what they're working on. I'm your host, Brendan O'Meara. Hey, hey, good to be with you, CNFers. Today's guest for episode 202 of The Greatest Podcast in the World is Ruby McConnell. She's a native Oregonian, and she's a fellow Eugenian here in lovely Western Oregon. Though we didn't get to record in person, so that's kind of a bummer, but such is life right now. One day, someday, she's the author of A Woman's Guide to the Wild and, most recently, Ground Truth, a geological... God, sometimes, sometimes, man, a geological survey of a life. It's published by Overcut Pressed. Pressed? What the fuck is going on here? But we'll get to that in due time. Overcut Press. Good Lord. I don't know why you'd want to subscribe to the show anymore, but hey, if you want to, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you get them. Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, all over. If you dig the show, consider leaving a kind review on Apple Podcasts. You might want to leave out the part where I can't get words out of my mouth. Or you, or you could. It's up to you, really. Reviews are great. And, I, of course, you can link up to the show on social media. Tag me in the show, at CNFPod and at Brendan O'Mara, and I'll be sure to jump in the fire with you. Also, I recently posted on the CNFPod Instagram a stack of books, big stack of books, and I'm raffling them all out. How do you enter? You merely subscribe to my monthly newsletter. It's free. It's once a month. It's reading recommendations, podcast news, sometimes my hot take on creativity. I get a lot of books. I often get the advanced uncorrected proofs, and then I get sent finished hardcovers. And I figure, why should I have all the fun? Of course, you should buy and support the authors who come on this show. That's why they come on the show, of course. But winning free books is fun, too. So be sure to subscribe to the newsletter at brendanomero.com. Hey, hey. And you're entered. It's that simple. First of the month. No spam. Can't beat it. Also, hey, with your work, how can I help you get where you want to go? Everything I'm talking about is having that coach in your corner. It's that accountability. It's about knowing where to put the pain Everybody gets tired in a marathon, right? And a coach will show you where to put the tired, where to file it away so you can finish the race. Likewise, I'll show you where to put the self-doubt, the tired, the grind, when you're so damn tired of your own voice. Don't I know it? How do you persist in the face of that guy? Email me, and we'll start a dialogue. I'd love to help you get there the way a trainer or coach will help you get across that finish line. Brendan at brendanomero.com for email. That's a mouthful. Hey, I had a great time speaking with Ruby. This was a whole lot of fun. We're in the same writing group here in Eugene, but we've actually never met. Why? Well, as a result of this podcast, I have so little time and energy to commit to my own writing. I spend almost all my time celebrating other people's work that I simply don't have much time to do my own. I'm not trying to be a freaking mata mar- here. I, I'm not complaining. It's just the reality and my failure as a human. So since Ruby joined the group, I had nothing to contribute aside from feedback. So I haven't gone in person in ages. Plus, it's like a 10-mile bike ride from to our host house from where I live. So there's that also. It was funny. Ruby didn't realize that the Brendan in the writing group was the same Brendan who produces the greatest podcast in the world. In any case, Ruby wrote an incredible book that is rooted in the Pacific Northwest. It's scientific, it's personal, but not academic or overtly memoiristic. There are those moments in there, of course, but I wouldn't classify this as memoir, and neither would Ruby. If you like Elizabeth Rush or Rebecca Solnit, you're really going to want to buy two copies of Ground Truth, one for you and one for a friend, so you can talk about it. 
then that friend needs to buy a copy and pass it to the next person, and so it spreads. So let's give Ruby McConnell a CNF and welcome all together now. Riff. You know, writers or reporters or budding journalists or whatever it is, they feel like they have to be in some place very exotic to get a good story. And they don't realize that sometimes the best stories are right in your backyard and there's great backyard journalism to be had or backyard storytelling, as I like to as I like to call it. Mm-hmm. And so this is, in a, in, in a sense, a good time to be like, oh, yeah, you know what? There are some things, great things going on right underfoot that I don't even, you know, I don't have to, you know, fly to the Yukon to find a great story. Like it's right here in my backyard. Yeah. And I think, I think that particularly the American West people do that. You know, a lot of people feel like in order to feel as though you've gone outside and in Oregon, you have to drive for many hours and sort of seek out this greater wilderness. But if you live in a place like Eugene, that greater wilderness is, is you know, like from, for people in a different context, just outside your door. You know, they like, oh, you live on a farm. I'm like, no, it's just a big backyard. It's perspective is everything. And, and a lot of people, I think, you know, Portland has what, like 170 people that move there every week right now, or some like huge number of people coming in. I think that they feel like they have to, take on this sense of American exceptionalism and, you know, these national park places in order to get benefit from wilderness and, or to feel as though they've, you know, made contact with wild things. I think that they're starting to question that. I think we're going to have to, as we, as we become more and more homebound. Yeah. And, and so you're, as we kind of alluded to earlier, you know, you're an Oregonian native. I uh, grew up mainly near Portland, correct? Yes. Mount Tabor. Nice. And so, uh, yeah. So, you know, give us a sense of the, the, you know, the landscape that you grew up in and maybe what your, what your parents did that kind of, uh, you know, planted a lot of these, you know, seeds that would eventually sort of germinate into when you uh, reached young adulthood. Um, sure. So really sort of micro topography level coming from a geologist, Mount Tabor <laughs> is in fact a dormant volcano and it's, and it's one of very few, um, dormant, you know, to somewhat active, potentially active volcanoes within a city limits, um, anywhere in the world. And for people who haven't been there, it's a city park. It's a large city park. And I grew up right on the flank of it on a dead end street leading into this park that was quite wild and um, both in terms of shrubbery and and overgrowth and being jungly and not very well kept up in the 80s, but also um, a lot of drugs and crime, you know, as happens in large forgotten urban places. But at the top of Mount Tabor is, in fact, a volcanic crater where you can see the layers of pumice. It's a scoria cone. Um, so layers of, of scoria and pumice. And you can actually you know, see the conduit through which the uh, lava came up. And then there's a basketball court and amphitheater in there. So it's kind of Portland quirky. <laughs> and, I, yeah. and I think that growing up in that kind of Portland quirky place, fundamentally and being given freedom in this urban wilderness uh, is the defining thing that happened to me. My folks have no idea how this happened. (laughs) (laughs) Are mystified by it to this day. They are not outdoors people. You know, they like to take a walk and look at birds. Dad was a fisherman. But the one time that I remember going camping with my family they chose to do so in the middle of the hottest part of summer to a campsite with no shade while I had the chicken pox. And then the only thing I remember from the trip is being finally coaxed to come out of the tent and sitting down in like a lawn chair that then like collapsed and ate me like a clam. And I'm like covered in chicken pox and my family is just like laughing (laughs) Not in the heartless way, but I think because they could not help themselves. And that's, yeah. So those are the answers to those two questions. (laughs) Mm. And so how do you get the the reading or the writing bug early on? Um, I didn't get the writing bug early on. I got the geology, outdoors, nature, environmental bug early on. And writing is a consequence of 
pursuing those things, learning a lot, and then finding that I had something to say. So I've always had to write by virtue of being a student, and I had exceptional teachers uh, early on and throughout uh, my, my education. Uh, I was very, very lucky in that respect. I, I was a reader and wrote a lot of science and found that very displeasing and not at all fun. Um, and at some point started having something to say in my mid-20s. And what about geology appealed to you? I got to go outside. <laughs> I, was a, mm-hmm. I was an environmental studies and um, general science major. My geology classes that I took as part of that had more field work in field courses than anything else. And so I took a lot of them and I ended up doing research on Crater Lake as um, like an undergraduate assistant to PhD students and one of the professors there. And I was almost done with my double degree. And she came to me and said, I have a project on Mount St. Helens that I need to give to someone. And I was thinking that I would give it to you but I'm not going to give it to you unless you change your major to geology. Hmm. So I did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's some, I mean, I, I, I suspect that like, uh, I don't know, like how Watergate got, uh, you know, um, you know, sort of birthed a generation of journalists. I wonder if Mount St. Helens, in a sense, birthed the generation of geologists, just given given what happened quite literally in your backyard when you grew up just when you were two years old, the eruption of Mount St. Helens. Uh, I wonder if that, too, is just uh, do you think that is something that has spurned the generation of geologists? Certainly, uh, it's definitely uh, integral to, I think, your development as a as a geologist and also a writer. Absolutely. And it, and it spurred a different kind of geology um, that's actually really Um, important to our time. You know, what what it did was bring hazards geology um, and, you know, risk assessment geology and real-time geology, forecasting geology, monitoring geology to the forefront of people's minds. Um, You know, previous to that, geology was, was really a mining and a development thing. You know, geologists um, we're there to make sure bridges weren't going to fall down. And um, we're there to figure out where the petroleum was and to figure out how to build. Um, but Mount St. Helens did a lot of to change um, perception. And it's interesting because this was really happening, you know, with with Earth Day and with some other, um, you know, deep ecology things that were coming in in the 70s, people were becoming more aware of system science. So when Mount St. Helens erupted and did so kind of as... Um, in like a public way that captured people's imaginations and was really close to a, you know, a major West coast city. It um, opened up this new way of thinking about natural processes and risk and risk assessment and what we might need to do for long-term things. And that really opened up our thinking in terms of climate change response. You know, I mean, this was the, this was the beginning of having entire programs devoted to this kind of geology. Mm. And what do you think it is about geology that connects you uh, and resonates with you on a, on a deeper level? You know, given that it's such a a very slow, methodical uh, science that's very hard in terms of geologic time to get our heads around. Right, it's a science of imagination, um, and. What what I love about it is, is twofold, and, and what really captures me is there's it's a it's a truly integrative science. So for a curious mind, um, when you study geology, you also study biology and physics and chemistry and math and geography um, in a way that maybe if you study just biology, you don't get to explore. So there's that that integrated nature of it that um, I think kind of overcomes that issue of rocks are boring and this happened a billion years ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I understand rocks are boring and it did happen a billion years ago or it took a billion years to happen. I get it. Um, 
but sometimes it happens quickly and we get to see it. Uh, and the other thing is, is that in geology, once you once you've been taught to look, to look closely and microscopically, and to look long term, and to look at all of those options in between, um, it stops being static. And so what's exciting to me about geology is the field eye, integrating everything that we might know from the laboratory and these other, these other branches of science, and then standing out and watching um, geologists tell a story of the land out of nothing within minutes is a really exciting thing. And it's a really interesting way to walk through the world. Is there a better place in, uh, let's just say, the continental U United States to uh, to get the geology bug, given the the Cascadia subduction zone and the ring of to the west, and then of uh, or you know what we're sitting on essentially, and uh, the ring of fire to the east. You know, is is this kind of a hotbed for it? It's a hotbed for surficial processes, for you know things that we can see on on the surface, and and for active processes like volcanoes. Um, a lot of people um, come and take positions. You know, the state universities have great volcanic pro um, programs because people come to study these rocks. But I will say, I did my graduate work at Northern Arizona University because it's an hour and a half away from the Grand Canyon. And mm. the rocks surrounding Flagstaff, Arizona, in any direction, um, are it's really like the best exposed stack of rocks in the world. You're just not going to get anything as great as what's out. The, the diversity, you've got Meteor Crater, you've got the entire volcanic field, you have the whole um, Colorado Plateau. You learn those rocks, you can identify rocks all over the United States. And so, okay, so you've got this, you're studying, you know, you get sent to Mount St. Helens to do, uh, to study, to study, uh, to study the volcano and do research up there. Um, about this time, you're starting to probably feel like you have something to say in terms of the written word. So what was that, that moment or that intersection between the expertise that you were building and also this, this creative itch to be, to, to, to marry uh, the communication of being, uh, you know, a competent writer with all this wonderful stuff you're learning that's very esoteric? I, it's a great question. So I had to, I finished graduate school and I started working as an environmental geologist doing like groundwater cleanup and site evaluations. And the bread and butter of, of environmental work is a phase one um, site assessment. One of the things that you do is trace the history of the property um, back to either 1940 or before its first developed use. And you do that sort of for all the surrounding properties in an attempt to understand um, you know, ways in which humans may have contaminated or impacted negatively the piece of land. And you do this when you're a brand new geologist, like, you know, 20 of them in a week, every week for years. <laughs> Huge volumes of research um, and field work, and but you start to learn the history of the place, and you have to go to the library, and you have to you have to walk the property, and you have to go to the local library and look at old aerial photographs and old maps, and all of a sudden, every piece of land that I looked at wasn't just the history of the rocks; I also had all of this human history, and I started to sort of I understand I understood the world in a different way. And I started to see patterns in politics and um, human choices and the landscape and my own life. And that was that was when the change happened. And you hit on a, an important point about, um, you know, coming to a point where you feel like you had something to say. And that's such a such a big thing with people who do personal essay or people who want to get into this kind of writing is it's one thing to have the chops to, to write a fundamentally good sentence or paragraph, but also the best people who might not be fundamentally sound are the ones who do have just life experience, things to say, things that have happened to them or things they've experienced in a unique way. So what were the things you were experiencing at the time that started to fill that reservoir of things that you wanted to say as a writer? Um, I, I did a lot of travel, huge amounts of travel. 
I um, witnessed working in environmental cleanup is really difficult. <laughs> at, at some point, it becomes really overwhelming, and especially hazard analysis. You know, you start to see um, how fragile things are. Um, I also, you know, like I had a life like everybody else. So I had um, people who who came and went in terms of loves that are gained and lost and friends and family members die and conflict and all the, you know, all the things that happen in a life. Um, and I start, you know, you start to, to age into that place. The other thing that happened um, too was I um, diverged in lifestyle from my like mainstream cohort in um, a way that was quite intentional. And I felt um, the need to um, sort of be a voice of caution in terms of the future that I thought we were looking at. I mean, writing for me is, you know, like it's a, it's a purging, it's a consequence. It, you know, it, there's a, I, I was a dancer. I was a performer for a long time and they, there's there's this sort of you know famous saying that like you don't you don't want to work with dancers who want to dance you want to work with dancers who have to dance, right? And I feel like that is true of writing as well. That you kind of you know like I don't I don't try to write if I don't have something to say. I put it down until I have something to say, and I'm okay with not having something to say in a day. <laughs> a few years ago, I was talking to a former dancer and a former ballerina and uh you know she had since got out of it she sort of injured out of it you know she just got banged up and that was it uh but i was talking to her just given the wealth of talent that is out there when you're trying to get to that certain uh you know the major leagues if you will uh of dance and i was like well how do you how do you stand out how do you you know, break through. And she's just like, well, the, the dancers that tend to do best are the ones who intrinsically know who they are as a dancer. And I wonder if maybe you can expand on that, having some dancing experience and then extrapolate that to being a writer. Cause it's very congruent in terms of the thematics. I agree with her entirely. I, I feel like um, dance in my life um, is probably the best preparation I had for writing in terms of, you know, patience, and putting in work and taking correction, um, mm. <laughs> you know, and taking yeah. taking revision, and then also understanding that um, you can. There's lots of dancers that dance kind of technically perfectly. I've I have I have taken you know many hours of dance with many different kinds of dancers, and there is a there. Sometimes you there, you find a dancer who they want to dance so badly and they're sort of they do they work really hard and they show up and you know like they nail it technically and there is still something that makes them not the dancer that you want to watch and a dancer can come in behind them and and be less technically brilliant and be breaking rules or be the weaker dancer or not have you know, some necessary thing, and it will still be the dancer that people want to watch. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, people, I feel like a lot of craft talk in writing is about this is how you're supposed to write. And then I feel like you have to kind of know who you are and know what your limitations are and your voice and kind of, and, and say, yes, this is how you do it. And then this is how I do it. And I have to make it readable and people, you want people to be drawn to you and you can only do that with authenticity ultimately. And it's true of the yeah. written word and it's true of stage performance. You have to be authentic or people will not respond. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, technique in dance ultimately, which is, which would be grammar, you know, and construction technique and, and the, you know, it's sort of, it's, it's the backbone. It's what, it's what supports the art but it, as if it becomes the art, you lose something. As you transition to being to being a storyteller and and a writer, um, you know, how did you uh, lean on those dance fundamentals so you didn't uh, get too frustrated or bogged down in those early years of grinding as a writer? 
you know, I, yeah, I got to say, I feel like nothing like ballerinas to to get you ready to take the rejection of a writer. I really, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like the diff. you know, I don't have to, you know, with when I do a reading, I don't have to be in full stage makeup and do it at the same time as 30 other perfect people. It takes, and you know, audiences are forgiving. Um, I feel like everything about dance in terms of what you learn about holding your own practice is the thing that lets me be a writer. And, and I don't, you know, I, I don't get bummed out by rejection. I don't get bummed out by, um, you know, having to write and rewrite. And and I never lose sense of the things that I've learned as a dancer to inform my writing. Like, for instance, one of the um, essays in Ground Truth, I sent a video of a dance that I had choreographed for um, one of my companies to my editor so as to help him understand why it was constructed in the way that the essay was constructed, because those two things had informed my thinking. <laughs> I had, mm. you know, like I had been, I had been thinking about these concepts for so many years that it, it was, pre, the essay was predated with a choreographed piece <laughs> that I was then relying on because you talk, you know, improvisation, the elements of improvisation are also the elements of writing, repetition, um, tempo, amplification, um, stillness or silence. You know, these are things that you use to construct um, a piece of dance. Those are things that you use to construct language and have it be effective. So you can use those fundamental skill sets um, to help every part of the process from the creative construction to just, you know, okay, I am not the dancer for this piece. You know, every rejection gets you one step closer to the editor that says yes. That's all it is. Yeah, and then you forget the no's because all you have is the yes, and you're like, oh, no, this was this is where it was supposed to be all along. And so you're almost thankful for all the rejection once you get that, once you're able to hold that acceptance in your hand. You're like, I can't imagine anything better than this right now. I'm so happy I was rejected and endured that rejection. Right. You know, and I just, yeah, for some reason, I just really am not bothered by it. I feel like, you know, especially when you're a dancer, your art is your body. And so Mm. the rejection and the feedback that you get, it's very easy. You know, you're like, I am the stuff of which this is made. And I think that writers feel that too. I am the stuff of which this is made. So it's easy to you know, take the criticism and the critique as a critique of yourself or your story rather than as a critique of the way that that story has been expressed onto the page. Much like, you know, dancers have a tendency to torment themselves with their own image being reflected back at them in the mirror. Writing and particularly personal writing is a reflection of yourself, but it's just an image it's not actually you and it it will change with light and perspective and time and all those things. So you can't really cling to that critique because it's a critique of something that while it looks like you is not actually you. What did, and I I love this about athletics and, and physical, um, you know, physical habits and everything about, and how that extrapolates in uh, overlays itself over the art. What about being a dancer? Uh, what discipline did you take from that that you were able to apply to your art? Every day, right? Every day. I still do a ballet bar almost every day. <laughs> mm-hmm. You do it every day and and complete things. You know, um, I I was a blogger for a really long time and worked in the very brief and very short form, sort of completing a single thought, you know? Um, and I think that that as a, as a daily practice was hugely important to um, helping me sort of find my voice and find what I write about and deciding how I write about that. Um, that, that absolutely you have to do it kind of every day 
and stick to it and finish it, um, I think is really important. Yeah. And it, it's so, um, I, I love when I need a sort of a jolt of sort of, uh, I don't know, creative steroids, if you will, something that makes me feel, uh, feel a bit stronger and feel a little bit less alone. I watched this documentary called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Mm. Have you ever watched the, have have you ever seen this? Yeah. Yeah, it's just like the the discipline of what it means to do something over the long haul. You know, just, you know, if you're feeling jealous or competitive or you're feeling down, just like ground yourself in the work. Just like set the routine, do the work, put your head down and don't try to be distracted by everything else. Just be the best you can be. And um, is that is that something you you kind of employ yourself? Uh, you know, just if you're feeling those external factors sort of starting to seep in and sort of seep into the bloodstream that you, you know, you need to just kind of get back to what it is, get back to the work. I, I think so. I think, um, you know, I, I'm very lucky to, to live the kind of life I live where we own our own business and I am able to write full time um, and I'm able to really structure my, my day to how I need it to be. Um, and so I think, I think that particularly in nonfiction where you have lots of different tasks, or at least the kind of nonfiction I write that comes with necessary field work and deep research and a lot of travel, you know, and so there's lots of different phases of the writing. You do kind of have to have a discipline because you have to, um, organize, those tasks so that they get done in the correct order to feed your brain, or at least for me, you know, (laughs) I can't, Mm -hmm. I can't start writing until I've sort of fueled my brain on whatever it is, you know, and have a certain amount of the, the work done. And so, especially in long form, um, which I'm doing a lot of long form, um, book length work right now, you know, you have, you, you have to kind of leapfrog all of your projects and stay super disciplined. Otherwise I think I would sort of lose the thread of, of so many projects. And what is your, your business in the, I, 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 I assume like the, the day job of, of your life. I own a cannabis processing business in the state of Oregon, a recreational cannabis processing business. Uh When did that start up? That started in Early 2016, we were um, in the first 50 licensees in sort of the the new era of legalization in Oregon, Um, and we are still sort of hanging tough as the smallest processors in the state of Oregon. (laughs) Nice. So how, given having a a business and a startup and and everything is its own, you know, uh, just just so... um, time expensive, if you will. So how, how have you been able to keep thread your writing around the operations of, of that and keeping that afloat and keeping that thriving? You know, I love what I do. And I lead a very simple life. And that is very helpful. So I wake up very early in the morning. And um my husband and I like really work hard at division of labor and sort of rather than um, work life uh, like separation, we talk about work life integration. So often we'll work a 10 or 12 or 14 hour day. And at the end of it, not be sure that we have worked at all. Um, (laughs) You know, I mean, it's really, I I have a lot of gratitude um, and it took a lot of work to, to get to this point. and it's not particularly lucrative, but it, ter- it turns out that, um, you know, there is something to be said for contentment <laughs> and that's what we go yeah. for. So I really, you know, I tend to write in the mornings because that's when I am more fresh, but you know, that usually, I usually start writing around six thirty in the morning and depending on the day we'll stop, you know, at 10 o'clock or noon or two o'clock or four o'clock. Um, but I also keep myself on a pretty strict, um, 40 minute cycle. I don't let myself sit for more than 40 minutes and I get up and do some other things. So that, that transferring, you know, every 40 minutes I get up and take on another task and either that's related to, you know, the house or the garden 
or moving our other business forward. So we get it done. Great. And what does the that the shape of that writing look like when you hit six thirty? Is that journaling or is that, you know, a project you're working on? Like how do how are you checking in with yourself as you get that part of yourself warmed up? I do a lot of list making, kind of an obsessive list maker. Um, Mm -hmm. so it usually, it usually takes me the first hour of being awake to get rid of, uh, or not being awake. I've actually usually been up for a very long time at that point. We, (laughs) I get up very early in the morning (laughs) and, um, so usually by the time I sit down, I, I spend about the first 40 minutes just sort of making lists, figuring out what has to happen, the balancing, there's a lot of business of writing that has to happen that can really bog you down. Um, and so I try to get those things out of the way and at least get a handle on, on the order that I'm going to tackle that. And then, um, yeah, usually, usually dive into whatever I have on the calendar. I try to reserve some days just for research and reading. Um, I used to reserve a lot of time for, you know, in-person research, but that's shifting now. Um, I try to reserve days for field work. Um, and so that I know what I have coming up. And I like that you you said that, you know, alluding to the the business of writing component. Um, what does that look like for you? Or, you know, it's, yeah, just what does that look like for you? I'll say. Well, um, I don't have an agent and I've never had an agent. So I have to sell my Me own neither. writing, you know. <laughs> yep. So, and I, and I do a lot of freelance work. Um, so I have to pitch and, um, you know, and edit and hustle. And, you know, you do have to do a lot of reading in order to figure out, you know, who's appropriate, who's going to want what you're working on. When are they going to want that? All of those things. Um, networking with other writers, finding events, promoting previous books, promoting upcoming books, promoting other people's books, promoting other people's work. Um, I think it's, you know, Um, All of that. And then, you know, just invoices and, you know, collecting some rejections, planning out what you're going to do, participating on social media. You have to do all of these things, constantly submitting the business of writing. Yeah, it's it is its own. I think a lot of people who fail at freelancing and I put myself in that category and you and I had a nice uh, (laughs) spirited Twitter exchange about how shitty we think we feel we are as freelancers. That it's uh, <laughs> which is a good springboard to talk about that. Uh, it's just like you don't realize how uh, a lot of writers don't realize that you have to see yourself as a small business operator. Yeah. And uh, once you kind of put that hat on and think about it in those terms, be like, oh, okay, if I'm going to land X amount of pieces this year, I need to be sending out, you know, a hundred queries to get ten stories accepted, or you know, the batting average might even be lower than that. You just I think a lot of people don't realize that kind of work that goes into it. Uh, so naturally, so, you know, for you, like, how are, how are you navigating that side of your, your writing life? In terms of freelancing, I would say poorly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Poorly and, and largely without enthusiasm. Um, yeah. Um, you know, I did this. I'm not a journalist and I don't have an MFA. So let, let's start there. Um, yep. And then I'm, I'm, I think a, those are two strengths actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a woman, but I, but I write about, you know, cannabis, geology, environmental stuff, science. Um, those are kind of not really woman dominated fields, even down to the, who's writing about it on the, on the final end of it fields. Um, and the kind of writing that I do is not, um, in a voice that easily translates into mass media. Um, also I have had a longstanding disdain for most women's focused things. (laughs) I say Mm -hmm. having written three women focused things. (laughs) (laughs) differently I hope I think my goal was to do it differently because I have been and so I I don't have an attitude or a voice or a perspective that's particularly appreciated um, by kind of mainstream women's outlets nor am I 
particularly welcomed with open arms into the male-dominated scientific community. And it puts me um, in a place where I find it easier to place book-length works. <laughs> well, you, you're carving, you're, you're like, well, there are these predetermined paths that you don't feel like you don't just fit into. So it's like, all right, well, fuck it. I'm just going to carve my own path. Yes. And, <laughs> and, and yeah, like get out your machete and just go through this part of the jungle. And, you know, if you're with me, if come with me, you know, people like me do things like this. Follow me. Yes. And I get that a lot, you know, like some of, some of, um, you know, like I, I really tried, I, they want when you publish a collection of essays to, um, publish a lot of those essays advance of, you know, like a deal or publication. Um, and I, I struggled with some of them in, in places that really, I was surprised, um, to have them not get picked up and got really wonderful, fabulous rejection letters. We love this. We love this. We think it's beautifully written. It's well-researched. Couldn't it be a little bit cheerier? <laughs> <laughs> like, well, I'm writing about climate change. And I think that if we asked the polar bears, if we could take a cheerier tone, they would probably say not so much. So <laughs> yeah, it was. So yeah, it's, it's interesting um, when you know that you're sort of bucking the system. I get a lot of, could you be, you know, we try to be more positive about the environment. I'm like, well, I try to be really honest. So here we are. Yeah. Well, there's a, a one moment in an essay you write that, uh, that it basically, uh, 10 years to understand that environmentalism cannot be about restoration, that the window for reversal is closed, that now it is a matter of survival. It's a radical attitude in the environmental movement in an unpopular one. Hope it is thought is the greatest motivator that everything can be saved. So in, in a sense, in today being Earth Day, of course, you know, it, it's uh, yeah, you kind of take a slightly more like grim outlook on it because things are things are grim. Well, right. And and I think that the that pandemics are indicative of changing global systems. There is no difference between one consequence of you know our global behavior and another so sea level rise and pandemics are related to one another intimately you know um hurricanes and sea level rise and pandemics and droughts and locusts and you know war and water scarcity are all related to one another expand on that like how the that that the the web of all that they because they seem disparate when you when you say them one by one but they are interwoven in a way that of course like all you have to do is you know just right. look to some look out your window right so in in the same way that we understand that if you take something out of the refrigerator and you know leave it on a wet warm windowsill it will grow molds and yeasts and collect dust and will become a new, you know, like it'll, it'll change the equilibrium of whatever the thing is. Let's say like an old tomato, you know, it'll rot. And that rotting is, oh, it's picked up, you know, out of the air, molds and yeasts and pollens and all of these things. And those things are multiplying and feeding off of it in this warm, wet environment. And then you have to remember that like, the earth is just this molten ball and that all of the life on earth is really just kind of like the mold on the orange or the mold on the outside of the tomato, all of us, all of us. And we are just as sensitive to these outside forces and it's just as delicate of an ecosystem. So you change one thing like a temperature, well, then you get a, a new bloom of something and that everything is still evolving. And so if you change conditions more rapidly, things evolve more rapidly and that we might not have time to evolve in response to something else's evolution is important to understand. And that's what we are living through is that something else has evolved faster than us in response to our shared environment. And with you know, looking at one of your essays here, I, you know, you wrote uh, that geology is a lot like life. And earlier in our conversation, you said it's a science of imagination. 
And um, what is it about geology that I think really, I think, you know, burrows down, gets, gets deeper. It's almost a very, when you really scratch the surface, it's a very writerly science because so much is going on, you know, beneath the surface, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. And I love the analogy. Um, the, the, one of the things that I think um, is is wonderful about having geology as like a background is, is that originally it was a descriptive science. And that was, you know, sort of, it was sort of men with sticks walking through the countryside making observations. And there is this huge vocabulary that you get when you study geology and you're, and you're taught then to look differently and to describe differently um, and to use, you know, use really specific language for really minute, strange things. And you get kind of fun phrases to play with and it's super rich in that respect. But I think, um, you know, it's the universal. It's the universal. And, and we have so few truly shared experiences. And so we have so few real form, you know, like we kind of feel globalized and monocultured, but I think we're also feeling really fragmented. And I think that the land is this thing that because it exists on timescales and, you know, big, it's bigger than us and it's smaller than us. And it's, you know, sort of outside of our control, that it's a really great starting place for, for humans. And, you know, to sort of think about um, connections. Geology is, um, you know, it's, it's a share, it's a touchstone. Yeah. It, there are, there are so many like great moments in the book where you marry the, your personal story with a lot of these, uh, a lot of the, the topography and geology and geography of the Pacific Northwest. So, for you, as you were constructing these essays, what was the challenge of trying to find the nice, the the right balance between here's the information that I'd like you to take away, but also here's the beating heart of it to make you care? Right. Um, yeah, it was different for, for every essay. And I had... Um... They, they feel really coherent and connected, even though they are separate and standalone in so many ways. You know, I'm glad to hear you say that because that was that was one of the primary challenges of constructing the book. You, know, you have a certain number of essays, and then you decide that it, it should be a book. I didn't I didn't start writing them as a book, and then I realized that it was becoming a book. Um, and then, you know, I had I had great volunteer editors. I had many editors willing to look at this, um, writers and professional editors um, that you know I had worked with previously while I was crafting. Uh, the book proposal and the connection of the essays was emphasized early on. And I read maybe 150 essay collections just to look at how the essays were connected. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's I mean, amazing. And uh, what were some, what were some of the, the key ones where you're like, Oh, this is a great example of, of what um, Elena Pazzarello might say, like she sees the essay collection as an essay itself. Yes. So it's so I, I suspect that the best ones that you were reading were kind of in that vein. Yeah. Rebecca Solnit is a master at that form. She's a master at that form where she'll take, you know, the same the same analogy will sort of appear in a different form in each essay. You know, the repetition of language throughout the essays, the calling forward and the the hints that you get of things that are yet to unfold and the holding on to, um, to some of those things. Um, I think, you know, even though it's probably like totally over talked about, I think that Joan Didion is also a master of that form, especially because her essay collections were often pulled from disparate pieces written at very different times, um, you know, or that were written for different, um, purposes. They weren't necessarily written as a collection. Um, and I will say here that I, that of those 150 some odd collections, almost all of them were written by women. <laughs> and I did that on purpose, too. <laughs> yeah. So anything that I have to say is going to be totally skewed towards towards women. You know, Gretel Ehrlich um, does a great job um, connecting and she and she's a land based writer, too. 
Um, but when I eventually, when I put the when I first put the the collection together and had you know you have to write the table of contents before bef you know when you have a proposal, you haven't written all of the essays or at least I haven't. <laughs> when I write my book proposal and I did it by physiographic region, which I found helpful as a geologist. But um, when I when I turned it in to my editor, my developmental editor at Overcup. He said, "What? <laughs> how have you done this?" <laughs> I said, "By physiographic region." He's like, "That's not going to fly." <laughs> <laughs> so I, <laughs> I put it a little bit more chronologically and um, found it easier to to connect them. But it was really actually um, thinking about that as I wrote sort of the last few essays in particular. Yeah, and what what's great is the the connective tissue of the whole of the whole thing and what makes it feel cohesive, at least it made it feel cohesive for me is of course the, the landscape of the Pacific Northwest. Like that's your through line throughout all these essays. And that's kind of what you're, you're able to hang everything, everything on, you know, whether that's, um, you know, the, 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 the essentially the, the innkeepers or the housekeepers along the Columbia river gorge and, um, and so many, you know, so many, you know, just so many other things, whether it's Mount, Mount St. Helens or, uh, or the, the Andrews forest deep in the Cascades. It's like all these things are what is, you know, keeping these from just uh, exploding and falling apart all over the floor. Right. And it's be and partly because there is an essay for each physiographic region, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also I, I was really clear, you know, people, I don't consider this a memoir and I wasn't trying to write memoir. I really sort of my my brand of environmental writing uh, follows the Irish tradition of the the Shawnee, of the Irish storytellers, and and you have to have some of yourself in that, you know, um, in that form. And um, I made it really clear early on. I was like, you know, we can't we can't edit this towards memoir because the analogy. You know, like I, I write about the salmon and I say that the salmon are not the metaphor for my life. My life is the metaphor for the salmon in this. And I was really clear that that was the direction that it ran in all of the essays. You know, as opposed to writers who use the landscape um, to help hold up the personal story or illuminate the personal story. My goal was to use the personal story to illuminate the story of the landscape or the natural resource that I was talking about. When I was reading these, I, it made me think of uh, Elizabeth Rush's um, Rising, mm. which is, uh, have you read that? Mm -hmm. The Because she had a similar way of, of writing her, her essays too. It wasn't uh, explicit. She was in them, but it wasn't explicitly memoir. It was very research driven and going to all these different regions of sea level rise. And it made, this made me feel like, you know, you were going to these various regions of the Pacific Northwest geologic, to, just geographic uh, or geologic diversity of the region. And, you know, using those things, as you were saying, as the as, to tell the story of the land, you know, but using you as a vector. My sense is that we can all do this. And that's and that's really my goal. My goal is to have people come out of the writing feeling like my stories are tied to the land as well. I, I think that that's, that's um, the part of it that makes an environmental writing. It's the part of, it's the part of environmental advocacy. If people feel as though their stories are also tied to the land, then um, they may assign value differently and they may behave differently. They may become protective. And you write in the book also about um, how you had an affinity for and a love for for the trees and everything, um, but that also runs counter to so much of the Oregon economy, especially from a few decades ago, is 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 on logging, and it's still a significant part of the economy, though though dwindling. So, what is the 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 conflict? Uh, that that you've experienced in Oregon between the environmentalists, of course, and also big timber here. Um, let me start by saying that big timber is growing and has been growing for the last several years. Mills that were shut down in Oregon um, have opened up 
There is a lot of timberland being sold. Um, I think that the perception by Oregonians that we are no longer a logging state is really something that we need to reevaluate because there are more clear cuts in Lane County than there used to be. And that's mm. been true of Tillamook County and a lot of Douglas County. Um, what I've seen in my history of living with the trees in Oregon, um, I remember really acutely the timber wars of the 1980s. And um, I remember very vividly the evening news with um, activists you locked around their necks to the gates of forest roads and um, bulldozers and heavy equipment being driven at them and um, loggers and sheriff's officers opening the gates and dragging protesters across the ground to let the trucks in. Mm. Um, I remember very vividly um, protesters in Eugene in the 90s um, sitting in trees in downtown Eugene and having police officers put um, tear gas directly into their eyes with Q-tips to try and get them out of the trees that they were protecting in downtown Eugene and um, the large crowd that formed in support of um, those brave people. I remember um, the Jasper Creek tree sit-ins um, of the late 90s. I worked for Greenpeace uh, at that time. And, um, you know, I remember when going into the forest lands of places like Bryce Creek, where people really spend a lot of time out here um, before it was clear cut, and I have been around and going to that place long enough that now those are turning into young forests again, you know? <laughs> so the, the, and, and you can still drive down to Coos Bay and see thousands and thousands and thousands of trees lying on their sides, ready to be shipped off. Yeah, very much so. Uh, and with over the course of, you know, writing this collection of essays, uh, and I think a lot of people who listen to the show are essay writers and want to write essay collections. Uh, what might you say to someone who who wants to uh, take on this kind of a project? You know, what was your experience of stitching these together and what advice might you have for someone who wants to take on a project of this scope? Um, be really patient. It takes a really long time, much longer than you ever think to write you know, any book, um, but also with essays in particular, be patient, be methodical, um, re understand that every essay, um, you'll probably write 10,000 to 15,000 words to get a two to 4,000 essay. If you're writing, if you're writing essays in a, in a, in a way that people are going to want to read them and at a length that they'll want to be read, um, you have to be willing to cut it all. Yeah. How, how did you develop that, that muscle? Um, I enjoy cutting my own writing. <laughs> I do too. Some people are like, I, they find it brutal. I'm like, I love being able to lop off 2000 words in a, in one hack. Right. Well, here's the other thing that I do. I, when I go to edit, I, I save a new copy, right? I save my copy. I save my versions. So it's the it's the title, version one, version two. And I don't care if I have 20 versions because at some point, at some later date, I might be writing something else and I will remember that I had that lovely language. And I didn't cut, I didn't delete it. There's a difference between editing and deleting. So save mm -hmm. all of your language because you might use it later. It's, you know, writing is like quilt making. You might need that patch for another project. Keep it. And... <laughs> Yeah, And so I don't have any problem deleting it, I mean, or editing it out because I'm, I'm not deleting it. I'm not throwing it away. I'm just not putting it into this particular piece. Yeah, it's not germane to that one particular one, but it's so great. I remember speaking with um, Mary Heather Noble like way back in the early run of the show, and she saves everything. She believes in the power of the drawer, that just because you've written it, you might have edited or cut it. It might not be the right time for the thing, so just put it away. And it might be 10 years from now, that one thing that you maybe you lopped off of a particular essay, maybe it's its own thing. Maybe you've matured into something where you can actually make sense of something you cut. 
So you just, it's to your point, you, you really should be holding on to all these things. Deleting, editing is not deleting and vice versa. Right. Oh, I think that's absolutely, you know, and sometimes you do just write a pretty paragraph that, you know, is lovely language and is absolutely inappropriate for where it's sitting. Um, but you'll go and cannibalize it later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and for folks who might not understand what ground truth means in terms of geology, what define that term and why is that so important to the title of this collection? So ground truth is, um, it's actually, it's a noun and a verb. Um, what in geology and lots of science, you often have to make decisions about things and make up stories about things and evaluate things from a distance. So air, the use of aerial photographs or radar or sonar, um, you know, you get some information, you look at the aerial photograph that looks like um, a mountaintop because it has a circular top. It turns out when you go take a walk to that place, it's actually a lake. They were both circular from above. You had to make a choice. You got it wrong. So the process of going back and verifying on the ground the assumptions and the story that you've determined based on information obtained from a distance is called ground truthing. They also use it in the military, sort of military plans for what they think they will find. And then there is the ground truth of the actual situation once they get there. Um, so ground truth, um, these essays, that was actually the process that I used. All of the essays um, feature a landscape or a feature or you know a natural element that I had some connection to my past and my history. And for each one of these essays, I did in fact go back and ground truth and revisit those places, sometimes several times over many years, um, to be able to write about them sort of from a distance and then from the the, what I was hoping to find, which was the ground truth of the situation. That's yeah, that's such a, a, a perfect approach. And so it, when you landed on that title, you must have been like, yes, this <laughs> is like the perfect distillation of what I'm going for. Um, I did. And there was there have been other books with ground truth and then a different subtitle. And I sort I sort of had to uh, keep advocating that this was the only thing. And then once you find, you know, once you find the right publisher for your work and the right editor for your work, um, they agree with that and they make it happen. You know, like when it's, when it's something really fundamental like that, that's, it's really important to trust your editors. It's really important to trust your editors. Um, they, they really are helping you. <laughs> At least mine right. have been, I've had really wonderful editors. And uh, uh, when I was reading it too, I came across something harmonic tremors. I'm like, that's a good title too. That, that I'm like, I got to talk to her about that. You should use that as a title for something. Well, I I had I had an, an interactive arts collective that I started that is actually still around. I was I'm no longer a part of it, but um, called Harmonic Laboratory in Eugene, Oregon, um, that took the title from Harmonic Tremors because the first um, piece that we did was a volcanic piece. Nice. Well, Ruby, where can people get more familiar with you, uh, find you online, and uh, get more familiar with, with the book? You can find me at Ruby Gone Wild across social media channels and at rubymcconnell.com. You can buy my books um, every place that you can purchase books but um, especially from local bookstores everywhere, including but not limited to some of my favorites, um, which include Powell's and BroadwayBooks.com, or I think they are .net. And then also you can buy directly from my um, indie press, um, which is great, and they are Overcup.com. Awesome. Well, Ruby, this was great that we got to do this and talk shop a bit and talk about, you know, the way your approach to these wonderful essays. So I really appreciate you covering out the time on Earth Day here to come on the podcast and talk about your work. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so appreciative of your time. I really, I really touched. Thanks. We did it. We made it CNFers. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure you're subscribing to the show, of course. This crazy show is produced by me, Brendan O'Mara. Hey, hey. 
I make this show for you. I hope it made something worth sharing. And if you really dig the show, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes are at brendanomero.com. Follow the show on the various social media channels at CNFPod across them all. Get that newsletter at my website. Win books, win zines, hang out with your buddy B.O. Once a month, no spam, can't beat it. Are we done here? We must. Because if you can do, interview, see ya! See ya!